Well, hello and welcome to our ANA podcast on 2023, the outlook for ESG and sustainability. A warm welcome. I'm Matt Townsend, partner and co-head of our global environment, climate and regulatory law group. I'm delighted you've made time to listen to the podcast and I hope it proves to be a lively and interesting debate over the next 40 minutes or so. I'm joined by our expert panel of international and very well-seasoned practitioners, it's fair to say. If I can just very quickly introduce them, we have Goran Gallic, partner in Perth, Gautier Van Tyne, partner based in Brussels, Artur Sauce, a council based in our Paris office, Gillian Niven, council in Johannesburg, Tom Darden, who is a senior associate based in London, and uh, last but certainly not least, Danae Wheeler, an associate also based in London. So I think it's fair to say 2022 did prove something of a tumultuous and busy year on the ESG front. Also fair to say, I think Europe leading the way in terms of sheer volume and breadth of the regulation and new regulation that we saw emerge. And the question, of course, is what does 2023 hold? Are we going to see the same pace? What areas are we going to see prioritised? not just in Europe, but uh, throughout EMEA and in APAC. What are we seeing from a variety of jurisdictions and how do some of these initiatives compare? So I'm going to ask our panellists basically to get their crystal balls out and give us their predictions for the year ahead as best they possibly can and to kind of help inform you know, the areas that we should be keeping a close eye on as the weeks and the months roll ahead. So without further ado, um, perhaps I can kick off with Gautier. And Gautier, what do you think we can expect from the EU over the next 12 months? And what, what are the priority areas likely to be? Um, thanks, Matt. Now, the main priority will be the finalising of the Fit for 55 package. I'll talk later on a bit about the ETS and the CBAM reviews. But that's not the end of it. A lot of work is still on the table of the EU institutions. Um, and as the saying goes in the EU, climate transition begins and ends with energy, but it actually applies also to transport and industry. Expected for 2023 as part of this Fit for 55 package are the reforms that the Commission started last year on the Renewable Energy Directive, the Energy Efficiency Directive, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, and probably out of reach for 2023, but still very relevant, the Energy Taxation Directive. On top of that, also scheduled for 2023 are new initiatives that the Commission started in July 2021 as Fit for 55 package, which includes maritime emissions, sustainable aviation fuels, and methane emissions. Now, it's impossible to go through the details of all these initiatives, but just allow me to use two keywords which will pop up in all of the discussions in the coming year, and that is actually hydrogen and nuclear. If you look at the current Renewable Energy Directive, it holds a possibility for the Commission to adopt delegated acts in which it can determine up to what level RFNBOs, renewable transport fuels of non-biological origin, and everybody's looking at hydrogen when you mention this. The Commission can determine what levels of greenhouse gas emissions can be associated with green hydrogen, what level of additionality, so should green hydrogen only be based on new or retrofitted renewable installations, etc. That's something which the Commission can do. But in the current discussions about the Renewable Energy Directive review, so the RED3 as it's called currently, the Parliament is changing the rules dramatically and actually is cutting out the Commission and is taking out the additionality, which is a burden, I admit, but it's a burden for any producer. They're cutting it out, so leaving aside the Commission's proposals. To make it even more complex, the Czech presidency, which is the presidency which is going out at the end of 2022, and is replaced by the Swedish presidency, actually tried to insert pink hydrogen, and here we're at nuclear, obviously, into the gas directive to change the renewable energy directive. And this discussion between hydrogen and the impact of nuclear on everything which has to do with energy spills over in a number of the other instruments that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Because if you look at sustainable aviation fuels, there's a proposal which is backed by both the council and the parliament to make sure that SAF, sustainable aviation fuels, account for a percentage of kerosene offered at major European airports as of 2025. That should start with 2% in 2025, going up to, depending on the council or the parliament, 
65% in 2050 or 85% in 2050. One of the discussions that you see popping up again is sustainable air fuels. Great. Does that also include SAFs, which are based on pink hydrogen? And we're all back to start and have the discussion between the Germans and the French again on the scope of pink hydrogen and what the role should be of nuclear and anything which has to do with Fit for 55. On top of that, the Commission is also working on a carbon removal certification framework, a plan to certify carbon removals, looking at their net carbon removal benefit and looking at all sorts of criteria to determine whether something is indeed fit to be certified under that scheme, looking again at how to quantify, at what the additionality would be, what the long-term storage possibility is, and how any removal scores in terms of sustainability. But one of the main discussion points is always about how permanent is carbon removal. And the Commission is looking at different types of removals, including carbon farming and carbon storage products. And the whole discussion is about what is a carbon storage product. Things like direct air capture is permanent. Things like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage is equally permanent. But what would you do with a solution which includes carbon into cement, etc. It's a huge topic for discussion, but it will have a major impact also on carbon markets and potentially also on voluntary carbon markets because these certified carbon removals could be tradable in the Commission's view, and that will have an impact on future carbon markets as well. So it's one of the initiatives, but maybe not the most important one, but a very controversial one. Gautier, thanks very much. Um, we are going to come back actually and just look at carbon markets in a little bit more detail in a minute. And I'm going to bring Tom Dardenne into that as well. And I also want to ask you, but I'm going to hold fire on this one until uh, we've heard from a couple of others around the possible reforms to the European Emissions Trading Scheme. So I know there are a couple of things in the pipeline on that. But if I can just switch tack a little bit. So I'd just like to bring Artur in actually and change tack slightly. 2022 was most certainly the year where there was increasing focus on supply chains and supply chain risks as well as corporate reporting. A lot of focus around TCFD. We're seeing greater discussions around TNFD. And of course, the European proposals for corporate sustainability reporting. So on the latter note, Artur, I know at the end of the year, the European Union just finalised the proposed directive on sustainability reporting. Can you just tell us a little bit more about it and what do you expect to see in 2023 in this regard? So thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, for sure, non-financial reporting is not a new thing, including in the EU. But uh, over the recent years, people thought that where we were was actually insufficient because, for example, in many member states, the reporting requirements are not very consistent. There are many loopholes. And so as part of the Fit for 55 initiative that uh, Gochi was mentioning, a new wave of non-financial reporting was deemed very much necessary. And the effect is going to be quite amazing, frankly. First of all, because, uh, and I'll say a few words about that very quickly, we're going to go from probably about 10,000 entities covered currently to more than 50,000 just a few years. And that's going to be very impressive. Just to have a, a very brief idea of who's going to be covered in the future, in addition to, to those who are, who are covered now, the thresholds are going to be much lower. And if you meet two of the following thresholds, you'll be covered. So that's a balance sheet of 20 million or a turnover of 40 million, or an average number of employees of 250. So you can guess that many, many legal entities across the EU and actually beyond the EU might end up being covered by the CSRD. A quick snapshot of the disclosure requirements. So as I said, until now, at least in many member states, this was very limited. But EFHAG, which is an entity working uh, for the commission with a, a kind of a public-private stakeholders approach, they've been working for more than two years. And it's a work that's been closely followed by a number of people, including us, of course. And the end result, it's not finalized yet completely, but we, we have a good idea now of what's coming up, is really, really impressive. So just to give you a brief idea, it's going to be about 300 pages of technical requirements with the detail. It's going to be more than 100 individual requirements. And interestingly, actually, it's going to cover the whole ESG spectrum, but it's going to make the ESG concept officially some kind of a regulatory concept, which is, wasn't really per se until now, because these requirements I was mentioning are going to be classified under environmental, 
social and governance. So it really makes it official, which I think is, is quite interesting. So one example of requirement, uh, just one, in the climate space. So companies in the future will be looking at full certified scope one, two, and three reporting in terms of GHG emissions. And then also full disclosure on the strategy of the covered entities, including on how they actually align with 1.5, so not two, but 1.5 degree objective of the Paris Agreement. So certainly a challenge for many companies which don't yet have a strategy today. Next steps very briefly. So finalization of these requirements that I mentioned, it's not completely finalized yet. And of course, next step for companies. And I think two things uh, to bear in mind here. First of all, really try to determine when and if it becomes applicable to you. There's a timeline for that, but I think many people will be surprised how quickly they're going to be covered. Second, how do you get prepared? And for example, for those companies who will be covered in 2025 for financial year 24, actually it ends up meaning that you need to have all of the legal, technical data infrastructure ready for January 1st, 2024, so less than a year from now, so that you get the proper data and then can do the reporting next year. So really a lot of work and also a lot of spillover to other things that we'll talk about, especially climate slash ESG litigation. So with that, back to you, Matt. Arthur, thanks very much indeed. And indeed, we know that that is a pretty significant proposal that many clients are starting to tussle with now. So uh, that is, I think, a pretty significant set of legal changes that will occupy many for 2023. Okay, so clearly from a European perspective, an enormous amount on the agenda. Gautier has talked a lot, particularly around the kind of energy space and uh, for, I think, understandable reasons. The question, of course, is then what's going on in the UK and are we seeing the UK government follow suit? And I'd just like to turn to Danae to help us guide us through that for 2023. Danae. Thanks very much, Matt. The direction of travel in the UK is for more sustainability requirements. The UK government has said that the UK is the world's premier location for sustainable finance and the government is acting to ensure that the UK retains leadership in this rapidly growing sector. And as part of this, the government is going to set out its new green strategy at the first part of this year. It's not yet clear what that will capture, but there are a few trends emerging. First, with respect to TCFD reporting, that's now mandatory for the largest UK incorporated companies and financial institutions. The first of these annual reports incorporating these disclosures are due out in spring of this year. Second, net zero transition plans. There's planned mandatory disclosure for all UK financial institutions and listed companies in 2023. And the transition plan task force launched its proposed disclosure framework for gold standard net zero transition plans at the end of last year. We expected the introduction of the UK green taxonomy at the end of 2022, but given complexities involved, the government has said that it will provide a status update in the first part of this year. So with respect to that, that's a wait and see. Lastly, in the first quarter of this year, the UK government plans to publicly consult on regulating ESG rating providers and is planning to potentially bring them under the jurisdiction of the Financial Conducts Authority. So, Matt, there's quite a bit on the agenda in the UK as well. Okay, thanks very much, Dana. There's also, I think it's fair to say, both, both in the UK, across Europe, the US, and, and in other jurisdictions, been an awful lot discussed. I'd say particularly over the last six months, been a very noticeable change in tone around greenwashing, with a particular focus on financial services, but certainly not exclusively. Do you expect that to continue in 2023? Are we likely to see more claims, more regulatory action in, in, um, in this space? Are the kind of regulators, as some predict, kind of rolling their sleeves up and looking for the kind of poster children in this space to kind of try and set the tone for the, uh, for the forthcoming uh, year? What are your thoughts around those issues? Thanks very much, Matt. That, that's a really interesting question. And as you correctly pointed out, greenwashing claims by governmental bodies and stakeholders, including NGOs, advertising standard bodies, the media and competitors are likely to increase. Along those lines, we can expect more regulatory enforcement and stakeholders demanding progress 
particularly as companies begin to publish their interim targets. In fact, in a global sustainability study across 19 countries and 12,000 people published last month, 66% of consumers rank sustainability as a top five value driver with respect to their purchasing decisions. And this is a 16% increase on last year. In that context, companies are increasingly introducing green products, but greenwashing is also increasing. And in fact, research carried out last year by the EU Commission found that 42% of green claims across websites, across a variety of business sectors in the EU, were exaggerated, false, or deceptive. And reflecting this growing unease, the regulators are responding. And in particular, they are increasingly scrutinizing claims of green and sustainable products. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority is proposing to introduce sustainable investment labels to financial products, as well as a general anti-greenwashing rule. And this rule will require all regulated firms to ensure that sustainability-related claims, naming, and marketing are clear, fair, and not misleading, as well as consistent with the sustainability profile of the products. And this rule is intended to come into effect, at least provisionally, from the end of June of this year. In Europe, briefly, the European Securities and Markets Authority is consulting on guidelines for fund names using ESG or sustainability-related terms, while in the U.S., the Securities and Exchange Commission is proposing to amend disclosure requirements on fund names that suggest a focus on ESG, including green factors. So these regulatory and compliance risks will be particularly compounded for companies operating across multiple jurisdictions. So yes, Matt, a lot's happening. Danae, thanks very much. And of course, the word that has not yet been touched upon, I don't think Gautier mentioned it either, actually, is of course taxonomy, or indeed I should say taxonomies. And that I think we would all expect to continue to gain greater focus not just in Europe, actually, but across the globe, as we see the proliferation of taxonomies. And that obviously is arguably very helpful in the context of greenwashing. Although, the, as we all appreciate, many taxonomies are themselves quite big beasts in terms of how you apply them to major institutions. So I think prediction number one, from me at least, is expect much greater tagging of initiatives, and particularly around greenwashing for obvious reasons, but not exclusively to taxonomies as they continue to emerge. And as we start to see the level two rules emerge, which will hopefully, and I am optimistic on this, but hopefully make life a little bit easier for companies trying to put the taxonomies into practical application, which I know has been challenging in a number of contexts. So in the middle of the spider's web, as it were, I think taxonomies definitely sits there. I want to come back, actually, to greenwashing if we have time for a further discussion on this. But let's just change focus a little bit. And again, the kind of topic of conversation with many clients in 2022 is around the kind of litigation base. And looking at the data, we are clearly seeing a steady rise in climate litigation. I use that phrase pretty broadly, I have to say, but around the world. And it's going to be interesting, I think, how that shapes up for 2023. And I want to bring our tour into this because France appears, whether by design or accident, our tour will hopefully tell us, has become something alongside the Netherlands of a jurisdiction of focus in this regard. But Danae, just finally with you, can you just help us set the scene and indeed give us your predictions for 23 on the litigation side and what, what we should expect to see? I'll begin by just briefly painting the background picture. So over the last year, 70% of climate litigation cases were brought against governments. And in the private sector, fossil fuel companies have been the most common defendant. And then in terms of jurisdiction, most cases were filed in the U.S., followed by Australia. And these are the trends that we've seen over the last couple of years. But for this year, I expect we'll start to see claimants cast their net more broadly. So, for example, strategic litigation is increasingly being used to attract publicity, obtain disclosure of documentation and information, and pressure businesses and firms to change their behavior. 
Strategic litigation, or otherwise referred to as impact litigation, is consciously designed to produce these ambitious and systemic impacts extending beyond an individual case. Cases are also spreading to new jurisdictions, and for the first time, cases were filed in Italy, Denmark, and Papua New Guinea. And issues relating to human rights and supply chains and climate matters and sustainability as well as the greenness of a company's products or services are also likely to grow. And in this sense, we're also likely to see more sophistication with respect to greenwashing claims. Claims will move away from overt misrepresentations about a company's sustainability ambitions towards omissions or implicit misrepresentations. And there'll be increased scrutiny of scientific evidence underpinning such claims. And lastly, we're also likely to see more cases explicitly concerned with the climate and biodiversity nexus, particularly as there's growing focus on the impact of biodiversity loss on the environment. Danae, thanks very much. So, Arthur, can I bring you on on this one then? So tell us what's, what is happening in France at the moment. It seems to be grabbing the headlines in terms of litigation, particularly around supply chains, uh, what can we expect to see? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think what, what Danny has just described in terms of the general trends uh, apply very well uh, to France. And it's fair to say that this country has been a front runner for climate litigation and, and more generally ESG-related litigation. So you asked earlier if it's by chance or by design, and I think it's, it's the latter, really. Not so much, actually, because, you know, France has been anything particular in terms of litigation against the state. We've seen that in many countries, the Netherlands and beyond. But I think what really makes France special is the litigation cases that we see against private companies. We've seen that in the US, we've, we've seen that with the Netherlands and the Shell case, but France has really a lot of uh, varied cases going on. The main reason for that from a legal standpoint is a French law called the Devoir de Vigilance, which dates back to 2017. And after, let's say, um, a small learning curve of, of, of one to two years, we've seen litigation popping up, triggered mostly by, by NGOs. The first wave was uh, targeting energy companies, so that would be Total Energy, for instance, but also EDF. And the second wave that we are really seeing at the moment uh, revolves around a very different topic, which is plastics. And that's a new one. I wanted to, to stress it. So about three or four months ago, nine companies from across the supply chain of, of the plastic industry, so that goes from production to, uh, to retail companies, received the formal notices, which is a, a prior mandatory step for NGOs before they can start litigation. And basically, the NGOs are trying to align their argumentation on, on what's been going on with the Paris Agreement. And they're trying to invent a concept of a trajectory to, uh, to the end of plastics worldwide. And on that basis, fresh off the press, uh, we've heard yesterday that uh, Danone, uh, so it's the, of course a large group that everybody uh, is aware of, uh, is now facing an actual litigation case before the, the French court. So Really, a lot of activity in France, and uh, I would say that it's probably um, a good sign of what's going to come in other jurisdictions across the EU as well. Arthur, thanks very much. And indeed, I think with a growing focus on supply chains, that is certainly anticipated, much greater focus in that regard. So thanks for that. Okay, well, changing tax slightly, and indeed continent, can I bring Gillian in to the discussion? And Jill, much was made, I think it's fair to say, of COP27 in Sharm last year as the kind of so-called Africa COP. Does that represent, do you think, a kind of shift in African nations starting to flex their muscles a little bit around the climate negotiating table? Or was it kind of pretty much business as usual, would you say? Matt, I think it's important to bear in mind that Africa, amongst other vulnerable countries, has for nearly three decades presented quite a clear picture that any mitigation or adaptation measure implemented by it in response to climate change would require significant financial support from developed countries. So although Africa is acutely aware that there is a need for climate action, such action should also support the region's development and industrial ambitions. What I think happened in COP27 is that the advances made in COP26 in relation to just energy transition partnerships offered a perfect stage for Africa to stress its vulnerability to climate change 
And just bringing that picture home, in 2022, Africa was affected by extreme weather events, including wildfires in Algeria, catastrophic flooding in South and West Africa, and record droughts in the Horn of Africa. This is in addition to extreme poverty, a high percentage of unemployment, underinvestment in infrastructure, fiscal crises, and political uncertainty. So I think COP27 just offered that stage to really highlight the unique um, issues that Africa needs to deal with. Climate finance took central stage at COP27 with developing countries voicing their concerns that developed countries' commitments to provide the 100 billion US dollars annually has not materialized. And this is while the need for finance grows. It stated that only 85 billion was raised in 2020 of that 100 billion commitment. In addition to the concerns regarding the financial gap, Africa has also asserted its dissatisfaction with the way in which funding is provided. Predominantly funding is provided in loans, and this has only increased the debt burden of already debt-stressed countries. The African Development Bank estimates that Africa requires an annual average of approximately $124 billion to adapt to climate change impacts, and only currently receives $28 billion a year. So COP27 then saw what we find a groundbreaking outcome, which is the Loss and Damage Fund, and essentially provides that nations particularly vulnerable to climate crisis will be aided by developed countries. There is agreement of a worldwide energy transition and the implementation of Africa's green infrastructure development. So the Loss and Damage Fund essentially provides a framework for developed countries to compensate developing countries that have suffered the impact of climate-related damage to infrastructure. Obviously, a significant development as approximately seven out of the 10 world's most climate-vulnerable countries are found in Africa. So some good news, but there are still concerns that remain over the lack of clarity on the size of the loss and damage fund. There are voices being echoed. There is an urgent need to look into the details in terms of what will operationalize those funds. Will the contribution net be widened to include private sector? Will innovative mechanisms such as a sustainable smart financing being considered? Africa hopes to see movement in 2023 regarding the quality of funding, the timelines, the instruments, the sources and the access, and substantive discussions regarding the shared definition of climate finance and details regarding Article 2.1c of the Paris Agreement, which calls for consistency of global financial flows from the Paris Agreement. Jill, thanks very much. Um, so there's certainly a huge amount of interest and excitement around the loss and damage fund in particular. So it's going to be fascinating, I think, for 2023 and particularly the lead up to COP28 in the UAE as to how that evolves. So I think we'll all be kind of keeping a very close eye on that. Kind of outside the kind of some of the key strands of COP27, what else do you think we should be expecting in Africa as regards climate initiatives, ESG programs over the next 12 months? So one of the quite exciting outcomes of COP27 was when South Africa launched its new Just Energy Transition Investment Plan, um, which is informed by a number of policy documents, including its newly published Just Transition Framework. And following this initial energy transition partnership between South Africa, France, Germany, the UK, the US and the EU, South Africa also saw the signing of concessional loan agreements with the French and German development banks worth 600 million euros. So with money heading towards South Africa, the JETS partnership model is being considered by other developing countries with similar fossil fuel dependencies. And we anticipate seeing a lot more discussion, engagement from various stakeholders in relation to those JET or just energy transition partnerships. Although Africa may be perceived and is somewhat lagging behind the US, UK and EU in relation to mandatory disclosure obligations and ESG-specific legislations, there are many jurisdictions that have already established environmental health and social impact-orientated policies and laws. 
So whether or not African governments have to date imposed regulatory requirements for ESG, it recognizes the global business community having and imposing strict requirements in relation to those branches of operations located on the continent and having to respond to those. What we also see is a growing number of African countries introducing financial market policies relating to ESG-related issues. And a survey undertaken in 2022 by the Official Monetary and Financial Institute Forum and the South African Bank, APSA, indicated that 17 countries on the African continent now have sustainability-focused policies. In addition, Matt, amongst the countries to bolster their regulation and policies are Uganda, where the central bank has launched a strategic five-year plan that included promoting a sustainable financial system. The Namibian Stock Exchange has indicated that listed companies have to set up social, ethics, and sustainability committees. Mauritius, Kenya, and Egypt all require banks to incorporate climate change into their risk management and reporting. And South Africa has launched its Just Energy Transition Framework and its Green Hydrogen Roadmap, in addition to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange publishing its sustainability and climate change guidelines. And then finally, just touching on some of the other themes raised by our colleagues, we also anticipate seeing attention being given to environmental and social impact justice organizations on the performance of private sector in relation to the numerous net zero commitments that have come about in the preceding two years and an increase, associated increase in climate and impact litigation. We also see these NGOs and activists putting a close eye in terms of the quality of disclosure being offered by the companies, particularly where the country has published a green taxonomy. And then on a more positive note, we are seeing our clients and the private sector really looking for more opportunities associated with carbon trading and accessing investment in terms of green energy infrastructure. Jill, a fascinating look forward for the next 12 months. And, and it it just, I think, in my mind, listening to your comments just reinforces the scale and the ambition that we are witnessing globally. And also, I just think some of the important nuances that exist on a jurisdictional basis that sometimes we can kind of easily lose sight of. And really, with that in mind, waiting patiently in our studio in Perth has been Goran Gallic, who spends his time working with clients across the APAC region, supporting them on ESG initiatives. And Goran, it would be great to hear from you as to what you expect to see across APAC. I know there are some very significant variances across the jurisdictions of APAC, so it is a little bit difficult to generalise. But if you can give us a few pointers for what your predictions may be for 23, that would be very interesting. So that, thanks, Matt. I think in terms of what we're going to see in APAC, it's very much a similar template to what we've been discussing and seeing in the other regions. I think some of the key developments here will be around uh, or centred around some of the more prominent themes that we're currently seeing in this part of the world. And the first is around taxonomies and classifications that you've already touched on earlier, really the rules for how we define what sustainability means. And since the EU taxonomy, which is obviously seen as the gold standard, there actually has been a proliferation of taxonomies across APAC. China was a front runner with its green bond catalogue in 2015, but others are catching up and Indonesia and Malaysia are, are really good examples, or, although I don't want to single them out for any particular reason. Indonesia's taxonomy, for example, has the same general framework as the EU taxonomy, so a green activity that has to positively impact the environment. It can't do significant harm to other aspects of the environment and it must meet minimum safeguards. But there are also some key differences, including around the fact that it does use a traffic light system and its concept of minimum safeguards doesn't incorporate broader international human rights and labour standards in the, way, in, the, in the same ways as under the EU taxonomy. Malaysia's taxonomy is also a traffic light approach, but a big difference is that the Malaysian one is principles-based in the same way as the EU one, but in a much looser and more localised way. So while this proliferation of taxonomies across some key APAC jurisdictions does give clarity on what sustainability means in the different parts of the region, it's also pretty clear that 
there is fragmentation and some major discrepancies emerging, including around, you know, minimum standards and sectors that are covered and eligibility criteria and the like. So this is going to have to be managed moving forward, especially for the sake of investors in jurisdictions with more stringent taxonomies, such as the EU, who are going to have to be tackling how they leverage investment opportunities presented by the Asian taxonomies while obviously avoiding greenwashing. For ASEAN members, the ASEAN taxonomy for sustainable finance might be one solution. So the ASEAN taxonomy does look to sort of define a common understanding of what's sustainable across the member states. How it's going to work isn't quite settled, but it will involve a principles-based framework and there will be additional technical screening criteria for certain activities across certain sectors. It's also worth mentioning disclosure. We are seeing some real developing trends around disclosure and reporting in a number of APAC jurisdictions. So across the jurisdiction, we're seeing a rise in reporting obligations or at least reporting expectations for both corporates and financial firms, particularly under the TCFD framework. Corporates are obviously coming under pressure from investors who need to make sure that their investments are backed by solid evidence and aren't greenwashing. So in APAC, we're seeing the stock exchanges and the corporate and financial regulators really taking a a lead in in driving a lot of the change that we've seen in this region. Currently, reporting is on a comply or explain basis in most jurisdictions, but we are starting to see a trend towards harder reporting requirements, particularly when it does come to the TCFD framework. So in Singapore, climate reporting will need to be aligned with TCFD for issuers from this year in Hong Kong. Certain financial firms will need to make TCFD disclosures also from this year. Australia has been behind, although its regulatory authorities have obviously always strongly encouraged disclosure and alignment with TCFD. But late last year, we did see the Australian Treasury announce uh, a consultation to a new suite of proposed rules on climate-related financial disclosure, and, and that's in direct response to, to real pressure from investors for Australia to introduce a mandatory reporting scheme in that regard, in the same way as New Zealand and Japan and the EU and the, and the UK have done. Another very obvious trend in APAC has been the rise of climate litigation, and we've touched on that already in other parts of the world. When we talk about climate litigation in APAC, we're really talking about Australia, which does rank number two in the world for most number of climate claims after the US. In recent years, we've seen a number of Australian climate-related claims, some of which are first of kind, generally under this strategic litigation banner that Danae has spoken about, but they include claims against pension funds and the Commonwealth government for failing to invest or for issuing bonds without regard to climate risk. We've seen claims on behalf of Australia's future generations against proposed expansions of coal projects based on climate impacts. But probably the most notable has been a recent claim against Australia's largest LNG corporate alleging greenwashing in statements that it made in its last annual report. It's brought by an activist shareholder group. It's the first greenwashing claim of its type in the region. It's very much early stages and difficult to give a view on prospects. But what what I would say is that it does signal the very strong likelihood of activist shareholders really continuing to scrutinise statements that corporates are making, especially energy corporates, in the context of climate strategy and climate risk. But having said that, it's also worth saying that for corporates, they can well better manage these risks when they organise themselves around something like a TCFD framework on their disclosures when it comes to climate and broader ESG matters. And then finally, one aspect that we're having more and more conversations with clients about is whether climate issues will move the needle on directors' duties. And actually, Corporate governance regimes in APAC jurisdictions are now starting to expressly recognise the very key role that a board plays in ESG and the management of ESG risks. So in Singapore, for example, boards of listed companies must consider sustainability issues when they formulate strategy. They also must undergo training in sustainability. 
So overall, we're seeing a very clear and significant shift towards viewing climate risk as a foreseeable financial risk that has to be considered by a board in the same way as any other financial risk. So questions around climate change are no longer about whether directors should consider and report on climate issues. The, the focus now is very much shifted to how directors need to evaluate and oversee an action strategy on climate issues and whether that action and strategy is robust enough to discharge their duties. And in Australia, there has actually been a series of legal opinions, public legal opinions by a very prominent Queen's Council and they've had an important role in driving the Australian discussion on all of this. Those opinions say that under Australian law, it's quite conceivable that directors who fail to consider climate change risk could be found liable for breaching their duty of care and diligence as, as directors. And in subsequent opinions, he's pointed to the fact of the, the Paris Agreement coming into force and the development of TCFD as an international standard as factors that now significantly elevate the standard of care that's required of a reasonable director when it comes to climate risk. And the regulators here are actually looking to those opinions and, and sort of making statements to the effect that those opinions reflect an accurate statement of the law in, in this region. Gordon, thank you very much. Just super briefly, if you could, are, are there any particular jurisdictions in APAC we should keep an eye out on for things being particularly active? Yeah, I think really it depends on what the particular issue is, Matt. I think in terms of taxonomies, it's it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the RCR and tax, taxonomy develops and works in practice, especially on how it fits in with and, and reconciles the various local taxonomies. On disclosure, the Australian consultation into climate-related financial disclosure is one to watch. It's generally expected that the final design will likely align with the ISSB recommendations, but we're still in a public comment and consultation phase. I think in Australia, we'll see closer focus and scrutiny of, of corporate statements and disclosures by activist shareholders and also by regulators. So corporates, I think, do need to look at aligning their climate strategy with TCFD as part of their broader climate risk management plan. And that's equally equivalent to directors when they're assessing their own standard of care and diligence on climate risk. But I think the last point, and a very important one when it comes to APAC, is to recognise and understand that it's a region of some quite young conventional energy generation assets, and it's also home to some of the largest emitters. So naturally, decarbonisation strategies are a particular point of focus in this part of the world. So we're seeing and will continue to see growing interest in the role of the voluntary carbon market and carbon credit generating investments. So in new investments in renewable energy projects, in hydrogen and even carbon capture and storage, especially so in Australia where CCS carbon capture and storage projects are capable of qualifying for Australian carbon credit units. And certainly much of the early carbon capture and storage interest in the region is from the high emitting jurisdictions that are looking to, to transport that carbon and get access to carbon storage capacity in receiving jurisdictions such as in Australia. And, and there's already talk of some quite significant world-class CCS projects in this part of the world, including the Moog project. Okay, thanks very much, Goran. Um, very, very interesting. No discussion on these issues would be complete, obviously, without alluding to carbon pricing, carbon markets, which have been very much a hot topic in uh, 2022. And I, I'd like to bring Tom Darden into the, into the discussion. And Tom, can you, can you share with us your thoughts and predictions on, on likely kind of trends on carbon, carbon markets, et cetera, for 2023? What can we expect to see? Thank you very much, Matt. Of course you can. So the trends, I, I imagine... If anybody has listened to the rest of the podcast, you'll get a rough sense of what you imagine the trends are going to be for the next year. There's going to be more of everything. The, the World Bank estimates that as at 2022, ETSs and or carbon taxes covered around 23.17% of global GHG emissions. And I think it's fair to say that we expect that this figure will continue to slowly tick upwards as new mandatory carbon pricing initiatives come online and existing initiatives are extended. 
On the former, and by way of example, 2023, we'll see the full commencement of the first operational phase of the Mexican ETS, which I believe actually has already started at the start of this year. The continued development of the Indonesian hybrid cap trade and tax system and the launch of major portions of the Climate Commitment Act program in Washington state. On the latter, expected examples include the anticipated establishment of the EU CBAM, which is expected in October uh, of this year, as well as the extension of the Chinese ETS beyond the power generation sector. So, yeah, we're going to see new initiatives, extension of existing initiatives. We obviously expect the other carbon pricing initiatives to continue to be developed in other nations such as Brazil and Japan, even if they don't come online this year. Clearly, there's no global carbon price as of yet. The IMF estimated that there was an average price of around six US dollars per tonne of CO2 globally at the midpoint of 2022. But it also noted that this price needs to rise to around 75 US dollars by 2030 to limit global warming. So it's going to be a massive challenge. uh, And we're still very much at the start of our journey here. So international agreements will be key to moving matters forward in the carbon space and the carbon pricing space. At the international level, we'll see the continued negotiation and implementation of the Article 5 and 6 frameworks, most notably at COP28 in the UAE. We anticipate further Article 6.2 agreements, but we don't see the Article 6.4 mechanism as becoming fully operational until at least 2024. So there's lots going on, and it's shaping up to be another important year for the carbon markets. Tom, thanks very much. And I think with each of these topics, there's actually an enormous amount of detail we could kind of dive into, but we don't have time. So that that is absolutely a topic of further, I think, for a further podcast. A lot of focus, I mean, you've touched on a couple of points here, but a lot of focus on the voluntary markets in particular, as particularly as corporates dash to secure future supplies of voluntary credits for a whole variety of reasons. So what do we expect to see there over the next uh, 12 months or so? So there's been a significant increase in the number of corporate commitments to net zero made in the last 12 months. And I think we can expect that trend to continue for sure. We think that this will obviously in turn drive further demand for credits in the voluntary space. An increased number of participants, coupled with growing concerns about greenwashing and litigation risks, as alluded to by Danae earlier, together with increased investor awareness in this space more generally, will, however, result in increased scrutiny on the quality of the credits that are being bought and the claims that are made in respect of them. In this regard, things to watch for in 2023 will include the publishing of the VCMI's claims code and the wider response to it. Through this code, the VCMI is aiming to direct private sector investment to the most effective emissions abatement projects. However, certain wider market operators, including Vera, were critical of earlier drafts of it historically. Along similar lines, and again linked to what Danae said earlier, we also expect 2023 to be a year in which investors become generally more sensitive to precisely what language they use vis-a-vis the claims that they make with regard to their purchased credits. For example, a change of narrative for companies wanting to claim climate contributions rather than simply offsetting. Here, issues to consider will be things like consistency across business units and the accuracy of the statements that are being made. Other things to watch out for in 2023 include the development by Vera of its Article 6 related carbon unit labels, as well as its proposed new standard for biodiversity credits, the latter of which is expected in the back half of 2023. There's also the EU's proposal for a certification framework for carbon removals, which Gautier mentioned right at the beginning of this particular podcast. We've already briefly noted our expectation for increased demand, but we anticipate increased supply too, particularly in the red plus space. Honduras and Belize are expected to issue 5.6 million and 7.7 million tonnes of red plus sovereign carbon credits respectively in the first quarter of 2023 for reducing emissions and protecting the Central American Jaguar Corridor. Papua New Guinea is expected to issue over 90 million tonnes of red plus credits in 2023 as well. And these are, of course, in addition to the 90 million tonnes of UNFCC approved emissions reductions eligible to be sold by Gabon for slowing deforestation uh, between 2010 and 2018 issuance of which was approved during the back end of 2022. The real issue, I think, which will be interesting for us to track will be how exactly will these credits come to market and who's going to be buying them. As a result of this supply, a key factor uh, as to pricing will continue to be how countries and sovereign buyers who've expressed commitments to reducing emissions through NDCs will look to use these issuances for their own purposes.
Along similar lines, it will also be interesting to see how countries such as Papua New Guinea and Honduras continue to implement their moratoria on voluntary carbon market participants issuing credits on the back of red projects and which other countries follow suit. Project participants should be particularly alert to possible issues here, but corporates who have entered into offtake agreements with the same should likewise keep the situation under review. Slightly separately, we also wait to see how ESG ratings agencies will be impacted by proposed legislation in both the UK and the EU. So to conclude, some high-level thoughts. The voluntary markets are continuing to grow and develop in both sophistication and size, and they need to. And we expect that these trends will continue throughout 2023. There is, however, a lot going on in what remains a heavily fragmented space, and participants will therefore need to follow the trends closely to ensure that they remain on top of the key developments. Tom, thanks very much indeed. I think that uh, sums it up nicely, and it brings our podcast towards the, the end. I mean, I think, how do we draw all those kind of strands together? As you said, Tom, there's an awful lot happening, I think it's fair to say, and that is set to continue for 2023. We're going to see more in terms of, and this is globally, of course, uh, reporting and disclosure, particularly through capital market mechanisms. The carbon markets themselves will remain very, very active. And the voluntary market space, we continue to develop, albeit in a fragmented way. Carbon pricing, carbon border mechanisms will proliferate as uh, they are absolutely at the central heart for many countries' ability to manage their carbon budgets, amongst other things. We haven't delved into super detail around the financial services reforms, which is a whole podcast in and of itself, but significant changes are anticipated in in that space, amongst them the further rollouts of taxonomies and so forth. And then Gautier kind of kicked us off talking about energy, largely actually and thematically kind of energy-related reforms and what we can expect to see there, which very much reflects the times that we live in. I think the kind of if I could sum all of that up into one word, I would say fragmentation, actually. And that's a theme, I think, for many clients, the level of fragmentation. The themes are quite similar, but there is significant fragmentation at the moment. And I think we would probably expect that to continue in 2023. So I would like to thank, first of all, our panelists for joining us and sharing their thoughts and predictions for 23. And more importantly, I would like to thank you for joining us and listening to this podcast. Further podcasts will follow. In particular, you will have noted we have not touched on the US. That will be the subject of a further podcast, as will a deeper dive into the financial services reforms for 2023 that we expect to see. So thank you very much for joining us. Mm-hmm.